Oh God, this morning as we uh, gather together and just observe the, the beauty of this place, the beauty of your creation, God, we are um, we're taken aback. We are uh, stunned at the glory on display uh, before us. And God, we um, thank you that with uh, the author of the Psalms that we can um, affirm that all of creation shouts that you are good, that you are glorious. And how reminded of that are we this morning as we uh, meet in this place. But God, we pray that the one who is transcendent above the earth would draw near to us now as we give our attention to your word. Would you speak to us? Would we hear you whispering our name? Would you call us out of ourselves, out of our preoccupations, out of our sin, out of the things that have been done to us and the things that we do to others? And would you remind us that you are good and that you have made yourself known to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm going to warn you right now, is one of those passages that if you're reading through in like a daily Bible plan, you'd be tempted to skip. You might wonder why in the world is he reading this whole chapter um, of a bunch of, it's a list of names that none of us can probably pronounce accurately. I just want to encourage you to uh, stick with it, to persevere, <laughs> and... Um, and all will be made clear <laughs> in just a moment. So I'm going to read for us Nehemiah chapter 3. It's a long chapter. It's a hard chapter to pronounce, but uh, we'll get through it together. Okay. So up to this point, what's happened is Nehemiah has, um, he, he has returned to Jerusalem to lead the effort to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And he's gathered the people together and he's told them about God's plan. And the people have responded and said, let us rise up and build. And then it says this. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Mushalim, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshabazel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Mushalim, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yashanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranoth, Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. 
Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramphah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol-Hoseth, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered its, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. And after him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani, Next to him, Hashbiah, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kalah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Baviah, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kalah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. And after him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. And after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After, after them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, <laughs> son of Ananiah repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king of the court of the guard. And after him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east, and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And after him, Haniah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaloth, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I could sit down now. 
So I want you to imagine with me a scenario, and if you're a parent, this won't be very difficult to imagine because you've probably experienced this. Imagine that you're taking your family somewhere, anywhere really, uh, to do some activity. Maybe you're going to the lake or the beach or you're going to go uh, on a hike together. And what happens is, as a parent, you've got to get the kids ready and get them in the car, but then you've got to also get all the stuff and get it in the car, right? And so you get all the things ready and you make the lunches and you load up the trunk and you get the kids buckled in the seats and you drive to wherever you're going and you survive the nightmare that is children in a car and you get to the place that you're going to go and you pull into the parking lot and there's nowhere to park. And so what you do is you go, there's like a drop-off place, right? If you're going to the lake or the beach or something like that. And you pull up to the drop-off place and you think, okay, we're going to unload the whole car here and then I will go park the car as the parents. So you get the kids and the stuff out and you set it on the sidewalk and then you start telling kids, now you carry this down there and you carry this down there and the kids are like, I'm just bringing my towel. And you're like, when we were at home, you insisted on like, the frisbee and the football and everything, and they're like, well, I don't want to carry it. And the kids start walking off, and they're going, I didn't even make the lunch, so I'm just carrying my towel, and they're walking down the path empty-handed with a towel around their shoulders, and you're standing there with a car and a big pile of stuff going, oh, great, now what do I do? <laughs> and what do I do in this parenting moment? Do I, do I just put the stuff back in the car and Mysteriously, it takes hours to find a parking spot. Or do <laughs> a friend of mine shared a realist, uh, an actual that scenario in actuality on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and uh, and then he asked this question. He said, "I wonder to what extent our involvement in the church is a little bit like that scenario, where we're going. Some of these things are really important to me." But when it comes time to take responsibility for them, oh, there's crickets. I wonder if that is a large part of what's happening uh, with the church in the Western Hemisphere in this time that we're living through. Uh, I wonder if that, I wonder to what extent that, re, um, that, that it would be an accurate description of our church or our experience with Christianity in general. To what extent are we a church where we shoulder each other's burdens even when it's inconvenient for us, where we take responsibility for one another and our neighbors and our city and the place that God has called us to serve, even when it costs us, even when it doesn't directly benefit us? I've been thinking about that question this week because as we're continuing this series in the book of Nehemiah, that we began a few weeks ago, we find in Nehemiah the people of God, the Old Testament church, in a situation that I think feels incredibly similar to our own. They have been living in exile, and they are returning from exile, and Nehemiah, God has called Nehemiah to lead God's people to regather and rebuild. And we're in a similar place, aren't we? And he, and he does that, and then, like we said in chapter 2, last, two, last time we met, he, he reveals God's plan to, to God's people, and God's people say, yes, we're all in. We are with you. And then here's the incredible thing that happens in chapter 3. They do it. <laughs> yes! And then immediately they just do it. <laughs> they said it, and then they did it, and it's 
amazing. And, and what happens, we'll find out later in Nehemiah, that they, they rebuilt the wall around the city of Jerusalem in 52 days. This wall that had been uh, destroyed 140 years ago and had laid in ruins and God's people had just wandered and, and not been able to gather. Uh, they say we're all in and they do what they say they're going to do. And incredibly, they complete the work in 52 days. And I think the clear emphasis in this passage is this. And I, I said earlier in the week, I'm not going to read this whole chapter. Why, why read all these names that don't mean anything to us? But the emphasis over and over again is that they're doing this together. The people of God are in this together. And if God is going to call us to be a part of regathering and rebuilding in our place and in our time, it's going to happen because we are all in this together. And of course, the point isn't, in the book of Nehemiah, the point isn't so much the wall itself. The point is ultimately that God causes people to work together, to give them a place and to protect them and provide for them so that they can worship because we find who we are in light of who God is in worship, and we become a blessing to our neighbors, to our city, and to our world as a result. The Spirit of God forms his people into the people he's called us to be through worship that we might be a blessing to our neighbors, and this requires everyone. So I want you to see with me what this passage says about rebuilding with everyone. And let me just issue like a caveat at the beginning that I realize I'm going to belabor this point. <laughs> um, because like I said, studying this passage this week, you read a list of names and you might be tempted to skip over it. But as soon as you start digging into who are these people and what are they doing, uh, it just kind of pops into 3D. And it's really incredible. It's really incredible. So I'm going to sort of belabor this point that God calls everybody to rebuild together because that's the clear message of this passage. And the Bible belabors that point. But the other thing I want to say as a caveat is that as soon as we get into what does it mean to be involved in rebuilding together with everyone, there's going to be questions in your mind. And there's one big elephant in the room, which is COVID. And you're going to be like, how does that apply? And I just want to say, I actually am going to talk about that. So stick with me. <laughs> Okay, let's, let's see what the, what, the, what the Bible says, and then we'll talk about the so what question. So the first thing that I think is really clear in this passage um, is that, that God is calling us to rebuild with everyone. Rebuilding with every, everyone means this. It means all kinds of people. It means all kinds of people going above and beyond in their areas of both strength and weakness. Rebuilding with everyone means all kinds of people in their areas of strength and weakness, going above and beyond together. Rebuilding with everyone means all kinds of people. This is an incredible passage. Like I said, it would be so easy to just next, let's move to chapter four where there's more action, skip it. But as soon as we start, like who are these people? Who, what are these names? And it, it, it's just incredible what you start to learn. The first thing it says in verse one is that the high priest and the priests together rebuilt the sheep gate. Now that means nothing until you start to think about uh, what is the sheep gate? The sheep gate is where the sheep came into the city of Jerusalem. It was by the temple and the sheep came in for the purpose of sacrifice. So this is about starting with the place of worship. And the high priests, the religious leaders, like the elite of the day are the first ones to start that work. I mean, Think about what it means that they're rebuilding a wall around a city. They're not driving tractors and dump trucks 
building forms and pouring cement. They're picking up rocks and stacking them. It's incredibly difficult manual work. And the religious leaders are the ones who go first. Leaders are the first to arrive. They are the last to leave. So much of their work goes on behind the scenes. There are several government officials uh, who are named here uh, in, in working for the rebuilding of the wall. There's one guy, it says in verse 12, Shalom, it says he's the ruler of half the city, and he brings his daughters out to help rebuild the wall with him. So we're seeing people who are old and young. We're seeing men and women. Um, all sorts of people are working together. The religious leaders, the political leaders are taking part in this work. The elites and the everyday people. There are so many of these names. It's fascinating to, to read several commentaries on this passage. And some of these people and places, we know what this means and where it is. And some of them we have no idea because they're just average, ordinary wonderful, you know, run-of-the-mill people. And the story of, of, of God's people is thousands of years of God's faithfulness to ordinary people just like you and me. And of course, we read the Bible and we hear about Moses and David and Peter and Paul, but they're really, you know, these few extraordinary exceptions. The, the, the majority of the history of God's interaction with this world is... God calling just regular people to himself and God loving us and us loving God and working together in response. And this passage is full of their names, taking up the work of the church together. It's interesting. There's all sorts of people mentioned here. The only people mentioned in this passage who didn't work together, did you, did you hear what it said? It said the, um, in verse 5, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. In the Hebrew, it, it says that they were stiff-necked. They thought that this work was below them. And the clear message of this passage is pretty clear, that when God calls his people to rebuild, there is no one who is above that work. From the highest to the lowest, the greatest to the least, the most able to the least able, God calls all of us. It's really an incredible passage as you read it. It begins by, um, again, you wouldn't know this unless you stopped to ponder it for a minute, but it, it, it describes the repairing of the wall in a circumference around the city. I guess I can do that counterclockwise. They start at the Sheep Gate on the north side of Jerusalem, and they move counterclockwise around until they get back to the Sheep Gate. They rebuild this entire wall. It's about a mile and a half circumference around the perimeter of the city. You know, they, they start at the Sheep Gate, but then when they go down to the Dung Gate, you know, would you like to have a nice condo there by the, <laughs> in the wall by the Dung Gate? Uh, the, the Dung Gate, it turns out, Jerusalem was built on kind of a slant, and so when it would rain, all of the dung would wash downhill, and that was where the dump was, and, uh, and so it's, it's a real place. Um, Fascinating thing, over and over we read a phrase in this passage. I don't know if you, if you heard it as I read. The most common phrase in this passage, passage is the phrase next to him or after him. Almost every single verse in this passage says next to him and next to him and next to them. Or he changes it up as he gets to the last third of the chapter and says uh, after him. Together is the point of this passage. All kinds of people rebuilding, and they're together. They're not doing this in isolation from one another. 
They're next to each other. They're with each other. And hey, I think we have to see this, that the message of this passage isn't just all sorts of people are invited. Of course, that's true. All sorts of people are invited. But it's saying all kinds of people are required. All kinds of people are needed. We need everyone. All of God's people are needed as we think about what does it look like, table church, for us to regather and rebuild in the fall of 2021. All of us are needed. We're in this together. One commentary I read said maybe the best part of this passage is the last verse where it says that, um, Nehemiah, as he's narrating this, says that it started with the religious leaders, right, in verse 1, and then you get all the way back to around the wall, around the circumference of the city, and it says the craftsmen are there. And so what that means is you've got the religious leaders, the white-collar elites, and they're working right next to the blue-collar guys with rough hands. And they're in this together. We're doing this together. It's about God's people being together. It takes all kinds of people. But notice also, it's all kinds of people that are going above and beyond. So many of the details here that are lost on us until we like dig into this. Uh, people from Jericho and Mizpah and a place called Tekoa. What does that mean to me? It, it means nothing to me until you realize that these are other cities in outside of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Tekoa is 10 miles south of, um, of the city of Jerusalem. And it says the Tekoites uh, coming from this town, I mean, how did they get there? They didn't drive. <laughs> they didn't all get on a bus together. They, I don't know, maybe they rode mules or they walked 10 miles in the hot, you know, spring. It's, this takes place in the spring in the, under the uh, mid Middle Eastern sun, Near Eastern sun. Um, and they walked and they built a section of the wall but it says that their nobles wouldn't work with them. And then it says in verse 27 that they came back. <laughs> That's maybe the most amazing thing in this passage, the Tekoites who, the wall wasn't protecting them. They didn't live there. They had no interest in this. They come back and they, do, they build, build another section. You know, we have this sense of what's in it for me. And that sense of what's in it for me is completely absent in this passage. God's people are in this together, and we're going to go in above and beyond the call of duty, and the goal isn't to take care of the things that matter most to me or just mostly direct, directly influence me or my family. The goal is to work together to accomplish the work that God is calling us to do. So a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this in the announcements, but a couple of weeks ago, Brad mentioned that we're trying to partner with Rocky Mountain Presbyterian Church to start a youth group, and that we need two people to serve as sort of mentors or, or leaders in this, not to lead, but to, to participate in leading this ministry together. And um, we're going to partner together with this other church, but we need some people to participate. And so here's the challenge, I think. Why do we need a youth ministry? I mean, this is like the perennial challenge of a church plant or a young church because church, new churches gather people, families with young kids a lot of the time, and then those kids start getting older. And then the question is, what's going to happen as those kids get older? Why do we need a youth ministry? Well, we need a youth ministry because you're either going to be a teenager or you are a teenager or you remember what it was like being a teenager. And so if you remember what it was like being a teenager, you know that there is going to come a time, it's not if, but it's when, when things aren't going very well, 
and you don't want to talk to mom and dad about that reality. And so what we are trying to do as a church is create an environment where each of our kids have five adults other than their parents. And that begins with little kids running around and smacking you on the butt and running off after church. But that sort of relationship develops into, in those teen years, in their 20s and beyond, a trusted model of faith that they can go to that's not mom and dad because I don't want to talk with mom and dad about it. And that's what we're trying to do when we're starting a youth ministry. And let me just be honest, like I'm as invested in this as any of you because I've got two already in that age category. But here's the challenge. (laughs) What that means is that those of us who have teenagers who are most invested in making this happen are the very people who can't be those two leaders, (laughs) right? We need two leaders who aren't super invested because it directly benefits them. This story is full of people who go above and beyond, who don't simply say, how does this affect me directly? And that's what we need if we're going to regather and rebuild together as God's people. This story is full of people who refuse to do just the minimum. There are five people who come back and do a second section of the wall. There are five people who are rulers of different cities. You know, the governor of California, well, let's not talk about the governor of California. (laughs) The governor of Wyoming comes to help rebuild the wall in Colorado. (laughs) I don't know what the governor of California will be doing next week. Um, there's one guy named Hanun in verse 13. It says, Hanun and his neighbors did 100 cubits. Cubits always a great measurement because we don't know what it means. A cubit is a, about 18 inches, so they did about 1,500 feet. That's like a quarter mile. <laughs> a quarter mile of like a stacked stone wall that these guys did. They just, they didn't say, okay, I've done like three or four days and I'm tired and sore, so... The rest is on you guys. There's another guy named Baruch in verse 20. It says that he built the section of the buttress. It says this, the section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. So Baruch is building the wall by the door and the house of the high priest. Now, why isn't the high priest building the wall by his house? Well, because if we go back to the beginning, the high priest is building the the wall by by the sheep gate in the north of the city. So somebody else comes to build the wall that protects the high priest's house. Over and over again, there's small little instances here of people saying, we're in this together, we're not going to do the minimum, or the part that serves us most directly. We have a common goal, and we're going to go above and beyond together. And then we see people working in their areas of both strength and weakness. Okay, so here's the problem. When, when there's something that we've got to get done, you know, if, it's, if we put out a, like a notice as a church, um, there's something we've got to get done, and it's lead a group, or it's stand up and speak, or it's, you know, uh, prepare a meal. Um, there are lots of people that will sign up and say, yeah, I can do that. that. That suits my giftedness. But if it's like, hey, we need two people to sit with the babies in the nursery because there are exhausted parents, and we would love to just give them an hour to sit and worship like one hour this week, then it's silent. And sometimes, and I get it, we go, hey, that's not my gift. That's not my strength. That's not what I'm called to do. And I hear you, but nobody has the spiritual gift of like 
cleaning the toilets or taking out the trash. You know, it's just like at home where maybe people want to cook dinner, but emptying the dishwasher, nobody wants to do that job. Nobody wants to fold the laundry. I hate folding the laundry. There are some realities that just things have to get done. And yeah, we do read in this section of some people who took the section of the wall right by their house, right where they're invested, and it makes sense to make that sacrifice. But others just said, hey, this work has to be done, and maybe it's not my gift, but I'm all in. You know, the priests are doing this work. The religious leaders are out there building. These are people who, you know, they, they, they study. They, um, these are not blue-collar workers. I would say, uh, in general, if you need some work to be done on your house, don't call a pastor. <laughs> right? <laughs> don't call the religious leaders. But the religious leaders are out here working. Um, they're behind the scenes, they're, they're picking up stones, they're building the wall. Do you know who is the first person here every Sunday? Who's the last person to leave every Sunday? It's, it's your leaders. And we're happy to do that. And I mean, it's not me, I can't take any credit for that, it's Danny. But here's the reality, like there's nothing, there's no correlation between being able to lead in worship and being able to pick up heavy things. <laughs> but the, the work of picking up the heavy things gets done because that's what religious leaders do. Uh, there, are, there are people in this passage that probably do have relevant strengths. It talks about goldsmiths and tradesmen, and I got to think, these guys have some building experience. You know, they maybe have a really beautiful, expensive section of the wall right by them. But then there are these other guys, there are the, the perfumers are building. And, you know, like, I mean, with those little ancient, like, pff, little... I don't think, I think these guys must have had soft hands, you know? I mean, but they're out there and they're going, okay, we're building. This isn't, this has to get done. It's not my strength, but I'm going to do it. White collar, blue collar workers here side by side. And you know, there's a lot to be said um, for knowing your strengths. And let me just be clear, like, of course we want you to serve in your strengths. And of, of course we want you to develop uh, an awareness of what you're good at and serve in areas that you're passionate about. Of course we want to do that. But there's also stuff that just has to get done. Somebody's got to be the first one here. Somebody's got to help with setup. And it's not a particularly like, you know, matter of gifting. It's like, can you pick up a thing? Okay, we start at seven. You know, <laughs> I don't know what time we start. <laughs> um, so don't show up at seven next week. Ask Danny. <laughs> Somebody's got to be the last one to leave. Somebody's got to lock the door on the way out, metaphorically speaking in this case. Um, <laughs> There's some things that just have to be done, and we need people to do them. And then there are some realities that are just common to all Christians. You know, our presence at worship is crucial. It's crucial for you. It's crucial for the person sitting next to you. Learning to read the Bible, becoming a person who is shaped not by the chaos of our culture or by the static of social media, but whose character is formed by just listening to God's word. Even when you read a passage like this and you're like, this, I don't understand this. It takes time. But it's a reality that's common to all Christians, learning to pray, being shaped by God's word, loving our neighbors, learning to speak about our faith. These aren't things that are just there for the super Christians, for the people that are called to leadership, for the people who have a sort of special interest in, you know, 
spiritual matters. This is what it means to be a Christian. The constant refrain of this passage is unity and togetherness. It's next to him and after him and side by side with her. We are all called to this. We're all called to this. I mean, even something just as simple as this, look at the person on your left and the person on your right or the family on your left and the family on your right and do you know them? And do you know their names and do you know what they care about and do you know what their needs are? We can only be in this together and serve one another if we ask for help and if we know what the needs are, right? Okay. Rebuilding with everyone. It requires all kinds of people. It requires us working in both our strengths and our weaknesses. I can't remember what the second one was. (laughs) So let's talk about the elephant in the room. COVID, right? That kind of makes it hard to be all in together. People are tired. The Delta variant is flaring up. What does that mean for us? As we think about regathering, as we think about maybe meeting indoors, as we think about children's ministry and about serving and committing to showing up regularly, what does that all mean and what does that look like? You know, the reality is that some of us uh, have particular risks associated with COVID. Some of us are just tired. We've been through maybe the worst year of our lives. We are wondering if it's ever going to end. Some of us just feel like we've given it our all and we've been burnt. And so let me first of all just say very clearly, I hear you. I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not kind of saying this in a vacuum. I want to be clear because um, we're going to say in the, in the coming weeks that everything isn't all just roses and, you know, unicorns as, as Nehemiah leads these people. There are, there are divisions. There are people with concerns. This passage isn't painting a naive picture of the unity of God's people. We're going to see division and infighting and people getting discouraged. And I get that. But why is this passage here? I mean, why is this list of names that, you know, even Nehemiah writing this had to have known that in a generation nobody would remember half of these people? Why? why, It would be so easy to skip over this. Well, I think that the the overriding emphasis of this passage is that God is going to accomplish his work through his people. And and Nehemiah has just given the people the vision, and the people have said, yes, we will rise up and build, and we are in this together. And, I mean, we're going to get to chapter 4, and the wall's not even done yet, so they're still doing the work. This is almost like a retroactive glimpse that, yes, the work does get done, And God does accomplish this purpose through his people. God will do what he intends to do. And so for us, I think that that means that the challenge is this. In the one hand, we have kind of our experiences, maybe our risk factors, our preferences. And on the other other hand, we have God's word and what what it requires of us, what it it tells us is normal for us. And so we hold these in, in, in two hands, and what we have to learn to do as Christians is to interpret our experiences in light of what God's word says. And there is every temptation and, frankly, example in our world of doing the opposite of that, of saying, okay, I understand what you're saying here, pastor, but this is what I'm dealing with. And I just want to encourage us, like in a generic way, we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail, to not sort of set aside the voice of God to us because we have this experience. I'm not negating your experience, but our experience cannot negate God's word either. 
And so if you're struggling and if you're tired and if you have particular restrictions because of COVID, please don't hear me beating up on you. I literally, I think this week, had conversations with three people in our church where they expressed some level of concern around COVID and what that might mean for their involvement and participation. And I think I am on pretty solid ground in saying none of those people left feeling bullied. I really hope not. I'm, I'm not going to try to like convince you to do something that you're uncomfortable with. But I think that there's a couple things that it would mean to let Scripture interpret our experience instead of the other way around. And the first is this. I would just want to ask you, what can you do? So much of the time these conversations are, well, I have this restriction or I have this concern, and so I can't do this. I hear you. I, I get it. I do. What can you do? What can you do? Because we cannot believe as Christians that COVID-19 was the thing that finally took God by surprise. And he just did not anticipate it at all. And so now the Bible doesn't matter because God was caught off guard. Um, If we have learned anything in the last 18 months, it's that disembodied community doesn't work. And so if you need to stay home, like, hey, I support you. And I don't know what the specifics of this are going to look like, but I mean... If you need to like join us online, I get it. But also, what I want to know is what's your plan? You know, we were created for worship. We were created for community. We wither without it. We've all experienced that in the last 18 months. And so if you're in a place of saying, I can't do this, then, like, I, again, I hear you. I'm not trying to belittle that. I just want to know what can you do? What is the plan? And I don't have... You know, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't have all the answers. I don't have any of the answers. But I think we can, like, sit and talk, and I, I'm happy to get this fly away from me. <laughs> I'm happy to brainstorm and talk through creative solutions with you. We also know that the work of the church doesn't stop just because there's a global pandemic. And the work of the church is not simply about what do I get as a benefit from being a part of the church, but what does God call me to do and allow me to be a part of as he uses his people in the world. And our call to be the church in this place doesn't stop just because there's a pandemic. You know, for thousands and thousands of years, Christians have supported each other and served their neighbors through war and famine and poverty and 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 pandemic. So let's not be the first generation of Christians to give up on that reality. We've still got children to disciple. We've still got parents who are desperate for help. We've still got people with lingering doubts that need somebody to talk to. We still have all kinds of needs. We still need to pray for each other. If anything, the last year has revealed that our spirituality cannot withstand isolation. We've got to recommit to discipleship, not pull back again. So again, what can you do? Because I get the concerns. I totally get the concerns. But let's not just talk about what I can't do. Let's talk about what I can do. What's your plan? The other thing that I think I want to say is this. We are not sending you out to struggle alone. That is in no way our goal as a church. (laughs) And, I mean, let's be honest, because it's not really my fault. That's probably happened. (laughs) It was my fault somewhere else (laughs) before I got here. (laughs) But literally, part of the reason that I'm here... I mean, most of the reason that I'm here, my job quite literally is to equip and serve you and support you. 
as you go out and do the work of discipleship. That's, that's my job. And so to the extent to which you feel tired or under-supported or, you know, it, however you would describe that, I just want to say I'm sorry, and I probably shouldn't have made that joke about it not being my fault, so please forgive me for that. But also I'm here, and I want to support you, and I want to talk with you. Um, September 26th. We have a dinner at our house that's all about just serving and supporting leaders. We just want to feed you and bless you. And you may have already been invited to that. And if you're not yet, you're welcome to come. So many uh, opportunities that I've seen that actually happening already in the church since I've been here. Okay, I know I'm going way long. So um, let me skip to the last bit of this. We have to, we have to see this because it would be so easy to read this passage and either be like, how do we do that and try to white-knuckle it out, or that isn't happening here, and so, um, oh well. <laughs> but we have to understand that this kind of unity, the kind of unity that's being described in this passage is, is not just extraordinary. The kind of unity that's being described in this passage is supernatural. The kind of the unity that is being described amongst the people of God only happens because of who God is and what he has done for us. And there's a, there's a, a reality, prime, the, the first thing in this is that this kind of unity is a reflection of the character of God himself who is united in diversity. The Bible teaches that there's one God who exists eternally in three people, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in substance, equal in power and in glory. We worship a God who is united in diversity. And so this sort of thing doesn't just happen. It's not describing like a fairy tale where nobody had any preferences or hard feelings and everybody just got along as they happily whistled and built a wall together. And we can't look at this passage and say, well, that's great that they were united, but they didn't know about Republicans and Democrats back then. And they hadn't heard of social justice and critical race theory or Black Lives Matter, and it would have been way easier to be this kind of person if it wasn't for Donald Trump. And let's just be honest, it would be way easier to be like this without Donald Trump, probably. But that, that is not the... Uh, it's all the more necessary <laughs> in light of the polarization. I read a, a BuzzFeed article this week, which is a great source of news, that said that the FAA has reported over 4,000 cases of people absolutely losing it on airplanes in 2021 alone, and we're only, what, eight months through the year? Flight attendants have had to duct tape people to their seats so that they won't assault other passengers. Multiple airlines have stopped serving alcohol on flights because people are out of control. And it seems that our culture is becoming obsessed with the ideas of unity and diversity, and at the same time, they are becoming more and more elusive. And what our culture seeks to do is sort of discourage doubts that might be, or uh, beliefs that might be divisive and strive for this lowest common denominator where nobody really has any views that would upset anybody else so that we could all agree on everything. And if the proof is in the pudding, I think it's pretty clear that that's not working. But the unity that we seek, the unity described in this passage, is supernatural in orientation. It's because of who God is, but it's also because of what God has done. And we cannot just like put a three-step plan together and then say, okay, now we're all united and everything's great. This kind of unity is only possible 
because the God who is united in diversity, when we were rebelling against him, rather than ignoring us or overpowering us or just wiping us out, in his strength, he took on our flesh and he died in our place. Our division can only be overcome because God himself overcame the division between himself and us. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about the unity of God's people, and he says in the church, we no longer regard each other in the flesh in like human ways. We don't, we don't get worked up about, about how different we are. And then he says this. He says, all this, the unity of the church, is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Unity isn't possible because our differences don't matter. Unity is possible for the church because the one who is willing to be, because of the one who is willing to be torn apart in order to unite us. It was because Jesus gave up his life when we were his enemies in order to reconcile us to himself that there is therefore no wall of separation between you and God. And then Paul goes even further to say, because of that reality, because you are not separated from God, you have been reconciled to God, you now for, we now for have the ministry of reconciliation. And so when someone says something like, hey, I've got some ideas I've even got some convictions about what I think maybe we should do. I had a great conversation this week. Jim and Linda Neville came and said, we got some ideas about cohorts, and we'd just like to share them with you. And I was like, yeah, totally agree with everything you just said. And, but they also said, but we're going to support you, whatever, whatever you choose to do. I just thought, that is a miracle. <laughs> that is a miracle when somebody says, I noticed something and I have a conviction about it, and I think we should change something, but whatever you, as a leadership, you know, whatever decide to do, like, we're going to support you. Like, that's not just people being nice. That is, the, that is a miracle. It took Jesus coming from heaven to earth and dying on the cross to make that sort of a statement possible. When somebody says, hey, I've seen this need, and I don't know if it's being met, can I just handle this? That is a miracle. Church, this is possible not because you know, we're going to finally be the church that gets it all figured out and everything's going to be great. But just maybe the gift of COVID and the pandemic and I don't know if it's right to call that a gift, but maybe the, just the reality of this time that we're living through is that we finally get to the end of like, I think we can figure this out on our own. The thing, the reality that has, has taken place in the last 18 months is that all we have is weakness now. And maybe if we've finally gotten to the end of ourselves and our plans, we can stop trusting ourselves and we can ask God to work in us. He might work in us so that he might work through us so that we might be a blessing to our city, to our neighbors, and to our world.